Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Habitat for Humanity of Georgia podcast, A Hand Up. I'm your host, Ryan Willoughby. Today's interview is with Mr. Harold Tessendorf. Harold originally hails from South Africa and has served as the executive director at three different Habitat affiliates in Georgia. Harold is now retired from Habitat, but still offers consultation and mediation services. You're going to enjoy this conversation with one of Habitat Georgia's foremost leaders and mentors. I know I sure did. This was one of our earliest podcast recordings, however, and so we were recording in a live room uh, without great acoustics, so please accept our apologies on the sound quality. However, the material, the wisdom that Harold shares here is phenomenal. So this is the Habitat for Humanity of Georgia podcast. It is Wednesday, June 19th, 2019. I'm here in beautiful Savannah, Georgia with the one and only Harold Tessendorf. Harold, thank you for taking the time to sit down and chat with me today. That's wonderful. I'm excited to be a part of this. So Harold, you know, I feel like you're kind of a a known commodity in the Habitat realm, at least in Georgia. But for anybody who maybe hasn't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Certainly. Um, So I was born and raised in South Africa. Um, my wife is from the United States, and uh, we met while doing uh, conflict resolution and community development work in Haiti in the mid-1990s. Um, so uh, prior to coming to Habitat, um, I've worked with, including the United States, five countries, my, initially in the field of conflict resolution. But then you begin to realize after a long period of time, not too much long period of time, that if you want to have sustainable peace in any community, You've got to address the underlying economic issues. And, of course, what's one of those big issues, of course, is housing. That's not only the case here in the United States, but around the world as well. Um, But I've worked um, not only in housing, but in agricultural and rural development uh, in South Africa, Haiti, Sierra Leone, Mozambique, and now the United States. And I've served with Habitat for 19 years, working uh, as executive director starting out with Military or Baldwin County Habitat, uh, moving to Macon Area Habitat in Macon, Georgia, and since May of 2016, uh, being in that role with the Coastal Empire Habitat for Humanity that serves Chatham County, Georgia. And, and Harold and I were talking earlier, for any of you who listened, um, his office here in Savannah is very much different from your office in Macon, which was very much different from the office in Baldwin County. Not, not nearly as much parking, but that's okay. Yeah, well, you know... Well, you know, it's ironic. Uh, in all three cases, we started in a, out in a house uh, when I started either in a house or uh, the basement of a church building. Um, and then we moved on to being consolidated under one roof and, and having a space that we could really bring all of our operations together. And uh, come January 2020, our goal is to be to have the same setup here in Savannah. It's fantastic. So. Was like deja vu all over it again for you, Harold? It does. Found, it found, does. Found what works and stick with it. Um, now, you said you've been involved with Habitat for 19 years. How, how did, I mean, you mentioned that you did rural agricultural development, but also some housing work as well. So how did you actually get into, I mean, what, what made you say, okay, Habitat's where, where it's at? So I first got uh, introduced or made aware of Habitat for Humanity when I was working in Mozambique. Uh, ironically, it was um, staying on the eve of 2000 uh, in a hotel in Malawi, waiting on family to arrive, that I read about Habitat for Humanity's work, its model and its work in Malawi, where it was working with the hotel industry to build um, safe, decent and affordable housing for the employees of these hotel groups that were getting visitors from around the world. But most of the workers were living in shacks. Um, and that was my first introduction to Habitat. And since I was, I have degrees in conflict resolution and in community economic development, um, the whole idea of the Habitat business model and faith really merged well together. And so um, once my contract ended there and we had a young family and we were temporarily coming back to the United States, 
we looked at, I looked at Working Father Heifer International or Habitat for Humanity International. And okay. I ended up with Habitat. Oh, okay. And the rest is history. Awesome. But you, did, you, did, you never actually worked for Habitat International? Were... No, no, no. I've always worked for affiliates. Okay, all right. And Habitat's work. Okay. And so, I mean, the next question here for me, I think, is kind of a, when you've got a career that's expansive as yours is, um, it's, it's almost might be very difficult to nail down this next question. But for you, what, what's been really the most rewarding part of your work with Habitat? I actually, I think to me it, it's two things. I think one has been to work along the years and in different communities um, and across the state, you know, with my involvement with Habitat for Humanity of Georgia, uh, with just exceptional people. I think Habitat for Humanity attracts people who um, aren't into just sitting around and talking but actually putting faith into action um, and that's been these, these kindred spirits that have, have energized me uh, a great deal so I think it's been part of and that's allowed me to, to grow in my faith uh, journey into I think in many ways be a better person and certainly a better Christian and then I think the other thing that has been very rewarding uh, has been to attend homeowner closings. And there's some of them that just stick out because you know that without Habitat's involvement, uh, well, you know in all cases, without Habitat's involvement, the family sitting across the table for at that closing would have been uh, basically uh, limited to a life of renting or being homeless, and you're creating that opportunity. But when you're working... I remember um, with one, with the 75th homeowner that Macon Area Habitat partnered with a, a gentleman by the name of Milton Webster. Um, he was disabled, a disabled veteran who had a Section 8 voucher. And that was one of the first uh, cases in Georgia where uh, a housing authority worked with Habitat for Humanity so that that homeowner could use their voucher to make a mortgage payment. Because prior to that, they would have lost that voucher. So that opened the door for, for a lot of things. And then this past Monday, um, you know, closing on a, the 146th home here in Savannah with a family where we had to go through a foreclosure to clean up title. This was a family that had experienced domestic violence. Um, basically, the children were spread out over several relatives. And when we closed... You know, and that you're helping to reunify a family. Right. So, so those to me, I think, are really special experiences. Oh, wow, that's really fantastic. Um, and, and I imagine you probably have a litany of them. I mean, you, these are probably not unique, one-off events. I mean, in your 19 years, you've seen quite a bit. Yeah, certainly, yeah. certainly. And and you know, I think you know, there's also been some uh, some disappointments along the way. Well, Ariel, since you've mentioned it you brought it up here you yeah so what have been some of the most disappointing experiences for you i i, I think you know probably well, certainly when i started i was much younger mm-hmm. and i think it's sometimes when you're younger you're uh, a little less forgiving mm-hmm. when people drop the ball you know whether they're homeowners whether they're volunteers whether they're board members whether they're staff um after a couple of years i've also dropped a couple of times and I've become a lot more humble, I hope, uh, and a little bit more forgiving in that. Um, but I think probably the biggest disappointment is the rare cases where we've had to go ahead and foreclose on homes. You know, and in particular, it's always, it's never a pleasant thing to go through. I think there's a sense of grief and mourning on everybody's part when that happens. Um, but it's been good to be able to keep those units in the Habitat family and serve additional families. But within that, I think the biggest um, disappointment when in foreclosure is often when you are foreclosing on a homeowner who's deceased. They died. They did not have a will in place. The family did not have the ability or necessarily the cohesion as a unit to be, to be able to make use of this home as an asset that really grows wealth. Um, and so that's why one of the things I'm really excited about here in Savannah is that we have partnered with uh, the Georgia Legal Services Program. Okay. And prior to closing, we've made it a condition that we will not close on any Habitat homes 
with our partner families unless they've worked with Georgia Legal Services pro bono mm-hmm. to get a will and last testament oh, created so that in such a way as though so that this really becomes not just a means of keeping a roof over my head, but this becomes truly an asset. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and, and you and I have talked about this before, but I mean, really, if you want to be very candid, I mean, the Habitat Ministry, of course, benefits that first home buyer, right? You know, the, the family. But really the kids, right? Because once mom and dad have paid that house off, when they do inevitably pass away and can pass that on to their children, their children are getting a debt-free asset. Correct. I mean, they're getting something that has equity in it, something that has value, something tangible, you know, something beyond just, you know, who's getting mom's china or sofa, you know, we're getting something really tangible that can, in fact, break the cycle of poverty. Well, and also, you know, the other thing we've got to bear in mind is that when homes, you know, when there isn't a will in place, mm-hmm. then we end up with the issue of heirs' property. The property cannot be maintained because it cannot be used as collateral to borrow money. Um, so it goes into all of our uh, cost of home advocacy points, right? I mean, it's about access to credit, uh, right. and that's so we're, we're we're not breaking that, and and it adds to blight. Absolutely. So, so you know, Harold, you've used. I kind of noticed this as we were having a conversation here that you've used a lot of terminology, of course, that are a veteran habitat person would, would use, you know, somebody who's well-versed in mortgages and legal aspects and that sort of thing. And it kind of leads into my next question for you. Um, you know, I imagine that you develop those, that sort of knowledge and skill set in handling these kind of issues over time, right? You know, it's kind of, we've, you know, more or less, we've had somebody die and then had to foreclose on it. We realized, hey, everybody needs to have a will kind of thing. But what are, for you, when you look at a Habitat leader, okay, mm-hmm. and, and not just somebody who's an executive director or even a board chair, but just anybody in the Habitat realm who's going to be doing what we do, what are the kind of knowledge and skill sets, maybe the most critical skills that they could have going into it so they don't have to learn those mistakes in advance, or, 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 you, or not mistakes, but learn those lessons in advance? What are the kind of skills that they need? Well, I think, I think, uh, Prior to skills, I think one of the big things is is a passion mm. for what this ministry is about, mm. and you know, being a very and, and being able to articulate and be a forceful advocate mm. for the importance of housing to break the cycle of poverty. Mm. You know, it's not just a human need, but it's but it's a, uh, addressing it is at the core of addressing a lot of the social ills. Mm. That, that face our communities and our society as a whole. But a couple of things I think that, that skills that come to mind, I think, first of all, I think is is being disciplined, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think having a steward's, you know, a servant leader type of heart is important. Mm-hmm. But alongside that, you know, the, the, the partnership between Millard Fuller and Clarence Jordan were about faith and business, mm-hmm. Right. So the rigor of, of, of thinking and, and saying, look, uh, we have to be good stewards of the resources and we've got to understand that all the resources are there um, that we need to get to, to get in. I, I do think, you know, sitting down and really learning the habitat system. So if somebody's new who's coming in or works in one particular area, I think what's important is to, to go out and learn what it means to work in the other areas, right? Right. We are so compartmentalized mm-hmm. as an organization, right? You have construction people, and you have homeowner services, and you have then you have this wonderful curveball called the restore, right? And uh, volunteers, and uh, you know, and it's so easy to become siloed. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to say, how do I spend boundaries mm-hmm. if I'm a leader? How do I get people together to to work across, and how do I um, you know, build even into performance evaluations. Um, how have you collaborated with your across departments? That's the first time I've heard that. Well, that's an interesting idea. Um, it's built. Up, we built built it into our performance evaluation. Did you really? So, mm-hmm. so making people be conscious of right. that collaborative effort, right? Not not just outside, but inside inside the organization. Oh. And 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 the first year it was a little bit challenging really? because people came back to me and said, "What do you mean by?" Well, because what happens then, 
in an organization, right? And in the habitat. And this maybe we're getting into something that's probably a real and key issue for affiliates is that all of the communication flows through the executive director. Right. So it puts a whole lot of additional stress and, you know, it, it, it makes... It, it makes it difficult to balance all the, keep all the balls floating, right? Right. When it would be so much easier if people were just talking to each other <laughs> right. and solving the problem. Because right. I think built into the whole model of stewardship is the whole idea that we, particularly if we're execs or board presidents, we need to be pushing power down. Yeah. Decision-making power needs to go down. I'm not the world's best example of that, mm-hmm. I fail a lot in that, but I think it's something we really, you know, need to be need to be pushing down if we're going to really have impact. Right. But then I, I think a, a couple of other skills that are really important, I think, is it's really easy to get focused on a house, mm-hmm. right? And when we're leading, I think we've got to be sensitive to what are the transactions, where are the critical problems we need to solve today. Mm-hmm. But we always need to be thinking, okay, in the course of each day, what are one or two things I can do mm-hmm. that get us 6, 12, 18, 24 months down the road? Okay. You know, so we've got to be thinking more forward about it as well. Um, and then I think, you know, another an important skill to bring is good listening skills and good negotiating skills. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and being able to figure out how to come up with good win-win outcomes. Really? Is it that sounds very tied in with your 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 past life in conflict resolution, right? I imagine that's something you had to employ quite a bit, huh? Right, and, and but I think in habitat, you know, you're less of a mediator, mm-hmm. right? Uh, to a degree, sometimes you can be, mm-hmm. but by and large, I think it's being it's really when you're trying to bring people together, right, mm-hmm. to build right. homes, communities, and hope, as our mission statement calls us. Yeah, it, it really calls for us to be good negotiators. Absolutely. I love that you just used the mission statement, by the way, because I, I like to, I put it on all of our letterhead and stuff like that, and I really like to push it. I'll, you'll see me do it tomorrow. Right. Um, you actually did something. I don't even know if you remember this, but you, um, I think probably maybe the second time that I ever saw you was in 2014 at the Habitat Georgia Affiliate Conference, and you were doing the statewide meeting of all the affiliates, and somebody had asked a question about quoting the mission statement. And I'm, I'm not sure that a lot of people were able to do it directly from memory, but I remember you standing up and saying, our mission statement is, and then reciting it off verbatim. And I love that. That actually made a huge impression on me. And, and I remember thinking, I need to be able to do that. Um, that, that made a big impression on me. I, I, well, I, you know, and, and thank goodness, uh, the mission statement's a lot shorter than it used to be. When I started with mission statement in 2001 with Habitat, you know, our mission statement was half a half a uh, page of a book. Right. Still very powerful. Yeah. You know, and I still always quote. Uh, for me, mission statement always gets quoted at a house dedication. Mm-hmm. Anytime we do any type of public engagement and we start, we start by reciting the mission statement and how this project fits into that mission statement. Absolutely. And then I think the other phrase that I really enjoy from the previous, um, the old mission statement, mm-hmm. is is its ending. So people can grow into all that God intended for them. Oh, wow. um, you know, I think that's that that's the other part that's that's very very important. And you know, I think you know if you if you want to talk about what's a critical leadership skill, mm-hmm. I think I think reminding people what the habitat story mission statement is is critical. Kind of beating that drum always. You got to beat the drum. Yeah. I call it conversion by bludgeoning. Com- conver- what, conversion what? by bludgeoning. Oh, conversion by bludgeoning. <laughs> that's a that's an interesting uh, metaphor. It, it is. I'm, I'm, I, I kind of hope you know as we're discussing leadership that nobody takes it too. <laughs> you know, just you. just uh, just in a quiet, loving, verbal way. Right. The, you know that's that's powerful. That's um. Speaking of listening skills, can I can I throw you a curveball real quick? Because mm-hmm. something we were talking about. We, the previous question, if you were answering it, and you were talking about the skill sets that an affiliate leader needs, and you, you made the metaphor of you know keeping all the balls in the air kind of thing and all the communication coming up to the top and good leaders pushing power down. I have something that, that I've been thinking about recently, and I wanted to run it by you and get your thoughts on it. 
Is that okay? Sure. Um, and, and for those of you listening, understand, just to peek behind the curtain, I gave Harold a set of questions in advance to help him prepare. This one is literally one that I've just kind of come up with. And so he he has had no time to prep for this. So I hope you'll forgive me. And Go ahead. Let's see. So, Harold, this is just something I've been thinking about. As I've been thinking about leaders in the habitat world and what they need to succeed. And I think in a lot of respects, a habitat executive director or board chair or whoever's in a leadership role needs the same inherent skills and training and mentorship and guidance that a leader would need at a Fortune 500 company Mm -hmm. or, you know, any sort of important role. And I think that oftentimes gets overlooked, especially in the nonprofit world. And, And you came from a nonprofit background. And the reason I, I think that it gets overlooked is I'm, I'm going to give you kind of an anecdotal way that I reached that conclusion, okay? And let me know if this has ever happened to you, but I've had people, when they say, where do you work? And I say, I work for Habitat for Humanity of Georgia. They're like, oh, that, that's really nice. And I say, yeah, it's very rewarding. It can also be very challenging at times. And they say, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd like to do something like that, like work for a nonprofit, you know, when I retire. Have you ever heard something like mm-hmm. that? People say that. And I don't think they were saying it with the sense of, like, when I retire, because right now I need to be contributing to my 401k. It was like, when I retire and I just kind of want something to do, it's not going to be too challenging. Correct. You know, it's kind of like, what you're doing is rewarding, so therefore, because it's rewarding, it can't be challenging. And I think a lot of people don't have that understanding that being a, a leader at an organization like what we do, it has all of the same problems and issues and, with that, the same needs at any major corporation. I mean, would you agree with that? Does this seem- I would I would wholeheartedly agree with it. And I think that one of the huge failings, just frankly speaking, within Habitat for Humanity as a movement um, is that we do not have a structured leadership development program. Really? Um, if you take a look at the YMCA, if you take a look at Goodwill Industries, right, that are two um, organizations that are held up, mm-hmm. right? Um, they have leadership development programs and people grow and move within the movement. Mm-hmm. We don't have that right. at all. Um, it's, it's kind of left up uh, to, you know, local affiliates to, to try and make this. And I think it, it places a huge burden um, you know, on affiliates. Now, on the one hand, uh, yeah, it's I, I like our organizational structure. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that it's local. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we could have a much more collaborative approach when it comes to leadership development. Um, and, uh, you know, and I know there's, there's things like the capacity building grant that's out there, but we've, we've, we've got to, and there's a lot of good online stuff that is out there, and I know this is a big area of, of issue um, of looking at ways in which we can even look at board development more effectively because that's so critical. I mean, I think Absolutely. that's part of it. Um, and there's some really good model the uh, models that are out there. But I think you know, I think we need to be more intentional. Absolutely. Uh, I, I asked you before we began if you saw our our live stream of our past board retreat last month and you said no but you honestly just kind of repeated verbatim what we had at our board retreat um my, my board chair is very big on this issue of leadership development and uh he would refer to like the boy scouts of america and the way that they mm-hmm. raise up leaders internally and there's this big emphasis on well, what you mentioned earlier about you know collaboration across departments and learning everything and you know raising up people right and, and so that that's a big part of honestly why we're even putting together this podcast now is to hope to maybe spur that on a little bit organically, right? Because um, you know it's been funny to me, Harold, that you even have. I've had several board chairs say this to me, which was interesting. They would say, you know, I was on the board for many years, but it wasn't until I became a board chair and I was working hand in hand with the ED that I realized just how difficult their job is, that just how much they've got going on, and that's kind of remarkable to me. You know, that people, even within our own organization, just don't realize how Herculean some of the tasks are that we have to do. Right. And, and, and I think the other thing related to that is that, um, you know, it, I think it's hard for, for boards, as you say, to, to understand the, the complexity of the organization. Right. 
Um, you know, there's a learning curve which goes into play there. And, and I think, you know, that, that's something we, I mean, certainly in my affiliate now, that's something we're really grappling with. As we move more and more into an aligned model of governance, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, so uh, what, what is that? What does enabling mean for us? What does it mean that we're advocates for the organization? What does it mean that we're going to be really responsible for raising the resources right. for this for this organization? Um, and how do we best learn about the complexity? Because we want to learn about the complexity, right. you know, of the organization. Right. So and learn about it without. Look, well, let me put, maybe put it in a more positive spin. Learn about it with that governance perspective in mind. Not learn about it with. We want to learn about it so we can tell you how to do it better. Exactly. Kind of yeah. Yeah. Exactly. More. Because that that that's that's really important. We don't need. We don't. That's that's something we don't need. I mean, if there's a problem within the organization, uh, then the board needs to trust or find the correct executive director who can resolve it. But then they've got to really be be out there in the community, being, you know, amplifying the mission of the organization. Absolutely. And that and that actually kind of leads to my next question for you. You know, if, if we go down the road of the negative side of it, the micromanagement, mm-hmm. you know, when people aren't being the advocates for the organization, they're, you know, instead just focusing on the little things. It seems, especially in our job, because there are so many little things, right? There's a copious amount of little things. Um, what are the things that you think are the easiest sort of things that most commonly cause you to get sidetracked or derailed as a leader? What, what do you see? You know, I, I think, uh, I, I think it's just the, actually the pace, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I take, for example, in our affiliate, I mean, you know, in any given day, um, I've got a checklist of what I want to get accomplished, and, uh, you know, I don't really control it. Right. Okay? Um, and sometimes it can be good things that come up, right? Suddenly you get communication from somebody who's a prospective donor who's really going to be able to help you move the needle and so suddenly you put that other stuff which you had that's keeping you awake at night and say while I've got this person let me deal with it right and then of course you have the other the other side of stuff which is um, and that I think is the advantage of having an office away from a restore right <laughs> you, you you don't have everybody turning around saying well if I don't like an answer a staff person's giving me let me go find the executive director yeah, you know so um, but I think the things that can really get me distracted Personally, I think are the daily uh, you know, transactions. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, just um, getting a house closed. Mm-hmm. And when you particularly are using, leveraging lots of different funding sources, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting all those plates to line up can be very, very time consuming. Even when you've got a, a good, capable team like I have mm-hmm. of people that are working on it, it's like, okay, uh, we've also, you know, we have our own internal check on one another, right? So we're saying, have you done this and that sort of thing. Right. So I think that that can be, but and then the, the net effect of it is, I think it does take away from the ability to focus on building those relationships. Right. And maybe just, you know, going to the mountaintop and kind of saying, well, what's the bigger picture? Mm-hmm. You know, that's going on here. And, and I think that's one of the things as we look forward within Habitat, and I think it was always a goal uh, when we founded Habitat of Georgia, not that it was the responsibility of the organization, but there was a platform for affiliates to maybe work more closely together. Right. And, uh, you know, even though we've got neighboring affiliates, we're so busy. Yeah. We're not getting to do that. Right. Um, you know, and we've, we've, I think we've got, to, we've got to build intentionally into our calendars more time to sit down you know, there was the the original idea of the district meetings, right. you know, and then there was some value, but those were hard to put together too. Yeah, yeah. But there were some areas where they worked well, I think, and you know that's that's maybe something we need to uh, need to do because even if it's hard decisions like, um, you know, we've seen and you mentioned this earlier, you know, the decline in the number of habitat affiliates in Georgia. Mm-hmm. We can change our organizational approaches. Mm-hmm. We can look at mergers, shares, sharing of resources without having to jeopardize service area. Right. And I think that that's, you know, that's something that, but but it takes time to build those relationships. It does. It does. And 
you know, it's funny, Harold, because every, you know, we do a lot of trainings and stuff like that. I mean, you know that. They're right. Um, but I think consistently the thing that I see when I ask, because I'll do like follow-up surveys or just call people, hey, how did this go kind of thing. Consistently, people always say the most valuable thing is just being able to talk with their neighbors. Right. Just to talk with the person next door. Um, and we did some of that, I think, last year. Um, I'm indebted to Louise Hurlis in Columbus for kind of helping us kickstart some of that. Um, putting together, you know, kind of smaller regional meetings to help some affiliates. And I think we're going to try and pick that back up because um, it is so valuable just to have that, you know, maybe prevent some of these problems before they become problems. Right. You know, just by giving people that chance to interact. Right. Um, as a side note, I, I want to say something just on a personal level. I'm looking at your notebook that you have here. Harold has a notebook in front of us. It has today's data at the top of it and it's a list of things. And I'm so glad to see that you work that way because I do as well. But it was so funny to hear you say, hey, I've got my checklist of things I'm working off. But then all this other stuff comes up and you get taken away from that. I, it's encouraging me to, to me because I, I think about that all the time. I have my checklist and then I get done the other day and I've got 12 items and four of my checks by them. And I say, what happened? How did I not do the rest of this? Well, because all this other stuff comes up. So what I do is I write down what comes up. Do you? Okay. All right. Because if you want to really think about it, as long as you aren't sitting in round and twiddling your thumbs, right. you know, um, in opportunity, if something comes up and it's opportunity and you've been able to move the mission of the organization, it's, one, it's also a little, slight little record right. that something happened. Right. Um, by the way, this is a this is the uh, book I got from you. Oh, is it? Oh, fantastic! Oh, that so your you wife did the uh, the logo for, she, if I remember correctly. She did. She would be very happy to know this. So there you are. There you are. So well, thank you. That, that's that's very encouraging. I, I love those sort of practical tidbits like that because it's never occurred to me just write down what came up. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, because you know, who knows? You know, we. We've moved the needle a bit. I think that's the way. Um, actually, on the wall over there, I've written a very small thing. is mm -hmm. actually a uh, homily prayer written by the... He's now, a, I believe, a, he's been beatified by, mm -hmm. the, by the Pope, uh, the current Pope, and that's Oscar Romero, who was mm -hmm. the um, bishop in El Salvador who was assassinated mm -hmm. uh, during the Civil War. But it's called a, 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 and I've shared this at Habitat meetings before, um, it's called basically a, a Prophets of the Future, Not Our Own. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things in there, it's just this, this humble reminder that, you know, we are, we're not the master builder. Right. You know, so we have a place, we can't do everything. And so I think, you know, I've internalized that and said, okay, for my own sanity, let me let me record what I do right. and put a check next to it when it's done. Right. You know, at least I won't lose. That doesn't mean that those other issues, but it, it does give me some perspective mm -hmm. that, yeah, maybe I started off with 12. I got four down on my original list, but I accomplished another eight because maybe you took a call from an affiliate that had a major crisis and, and right. was able to defuse it. Right? That's part of your job. That, that is very helpful. Um, That's very helpful. Um, I'm sorry for us to go off on that little oh, bit. No. Because it, I think as you were concluding just a few moments ago, your uh, answer to my previous question, it was kind of leading into the next, which is, you know, challenges, right? We're, we're, we're going to face challenges. We know that. Right. So what are some of the major challenges that you see right now and your, and your viewpoint on those challenges that we have as, as, as habitat leaders and then what do you see coming down the pipeline what do you think is going to be challenging for us you know one three five ten years from now so you know in, in thinking about this i think as as leaders i think one of our our biggest challenges and this this is still the original thing that millet fuller wrote was quoted in, and was included in a little Habitat International primer years ago. Um, we said we was asked what's Habitat's biggest need, and he said it's leadership. Wow. So um, you know, I think that is still. I think it's 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 also attracting leadership um, that understands and can take advantage of the complexities mm -hmm. that are out there. But I think 
you know, outside of our affiliates, I think we've we as an organization have a number of built in uh, built in challenges. The way I sometimes describe it is, you know, we're we're forty years old, so we have a midlife crisis um, <laughs> as an organization. That is okay, um, and let me play with that a little bit because, you know, we're no longer that we're no longer in that startup phase where affiliates were growing and. Jimmy Carter was out there every weekend, but I mean, he was he was visible in Georgia. Right. I have photos in all of my affiliates where he came to affiliates. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's unable to do that anymore. Right. We don't have we don't have the next Jimmy Carter right. lined up yet, uh, or somebody of of that caliber. And so I think in many ways, Habitat has become part of the background noise. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Georgia Public Broadcasting's on second thought. Is not calling up Habitat for Humanity to talk about affordable housing, right? Right, and I think that really describes the thing. Everybody likes us, Mm -hmm. um, but you know, sometimes we're like the family member who we're not really sure how they're going to behave at the at the reunion. (laughs) So, so I do think you know that that's a big challenge that we've got. How do we remain true to our core values Mm -hmm. and yet show how relevant we are? Right, particularly in addressing issues that face the state, um, you know, and then, and then with that, I think I wrote down a couple of notes here, so I'm putting my glasses back on. Yeah. But I think really, I think people understand us, yeah. and we're at our best, and we can people can relate the best to us when we're building a house. Right. But when we're talking about scaling it up mm-hmm. and serving multiple families and being good advocates and how all these things tie together. It's harder for their traditional base of ours, mm-hmm. which is a type of person, not necessarily an age group or a particular demographic, right. to really relate to what we're trying to do. And I think we have got to figure out how do we how do we tell that story in a more compelling way. Yeah. I think the cost of home program with those four areas right. allows us to say, okay, well, there's this big picture, but here's what this means in our community. Okay, when we're we're talking about it, and I think we also have to break the stigma of what uh, my good my good friend Bruce Day called um, hobby tot for humanity. Right, when he talks about scale, mm-hmm. a lot of times people are happy when we're building one or two houses a year, right. and that's what excites them and that sort of thing. But we know the need is so much larger, so much, and so so how do we do that? Um, but we also can't just be sitting on the 14th floor of a building in Atlanta, right? right? We are a hands-on ministry, and I think as long as we respect and stay in touch with that and engage people where they are, we will succeed. Absolutely. But, you know, I think think that's it. Um, And then I think the other thing I think is the big challenge here in Georgia Mm -hmm. is the fact that we're losing service area. Mm -hmm. When affiliates are closing down, that means that our footprint is less. Right. It's diminished. Um, and I think we need to grieve that mm-hmm. in the same way we would grieve. Um, here in Savannah, if you drive down Truman Parkway, which is behind me north, and you get to the end of it just before the Savannah River, there are trees that are dying, mm-hmm. whole, a whole forest of trees. Mm-hmm. Those trees are dying because of increased salinity. as mm-hmm. more salt water gets into the water system, right? right? And I think we need to think about that as a metaphor. So when I drive down there, I wasn't aware why those trees were dying until somebody did a really good story about it. But it started getting me thinking about the fact that we should be really thinking about why is our, you know, why is our community, um, you know, why what can we do to reduce this footprint um, the diminishing of our footprint. Right, because affiliates aren't closing in areas that don't need habitat. Correct. You know, it's not like those areas have reached you know, maximum affluence, and so now there's nobody who needs sure. housing assistance. Um, and, and I think you know, it goes back to, again, to leadership. I think it really means about investing in habitat staff. I wrote down my notes. But it's also about really um, building strong boards mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that get out there and I think the other point related to that is leaders, we need to look at ways in which we can better collaborate um, across affiliate service areas. A um, couple of other things that I just 
well, the last thing I actually wrote down, and this has to do with just a statistic from Habitat International that I saw yesterday being on one of the advisory committees on the COM, the Collaborative Operating Model, um, is actually tithing. It's one of the cornerstones of Habitat Affiliates. It's something I feel pretty strongly about um, because I've worked in other countries. Right. I've seen how important those transfer of resources are. But there's so few affiliates. It's really the 80-20 principle mm-hmm. that 80% of the tie, total tie of contributions are coming from roughly 20% of affiliates. Right. Um, and... You know, we think about, we also have this opportunity to be good good international ambassadors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I do think, uh, you know, we, we, we really need to be intentional. I mean, but all of my affiliates have been really intentional about making sure we understand why we tithe right. and building those connections with the, the countries we give to. Right. So not just giving to Habitat International to say, use where you can. Right. If you don't have a relationship, do it. But somebody in your community, some church, is doing something in a country somewhere in the world, right. see if they've got a habitat program, start tithing to them, make that connection local. Well, you know, it's funny, Harold, because your point here about the tithe, I think also corresponds very much with your idea about being local or being advocates and getting people beyond the idea of just one house and multiple houses and right. collaborate. You know, the thing that popped in my mind when you said that was the three houses. You know, and yeah. Jonathan Redford talking about the three houses and, you know, going from local and, you know, sector impact into societal. Right. I mean, how do you how do you move into societal impact if you're only focused on one little area, a couple square miles? I mean, I mean, sincerely, how, how do you accomplish societal impact if your viewpoint is only limited to this region? Right. I mean, you've got to have that bigger view. And I think a big part of that. Right. Right. Seeing that the ministry... Let's be honest, you wouldn't be here probably if it wasn't for somebody tithing and sending money over to uh, Malawi, right? Uh, Correct, correct. Yeah, I mean, in the sense of not because I worked in Malawi, right, I was in a different organization altogether, but, yeah, I mean, and bringing the idea, right? right? Yeah, bringing the idea. And and I think the other thing we've got to realize with regards to, you know, when we talk about leadership development and learning, Mm. we also need to be open to what Habitat is doing in other parts of the world, mm-hmm. right? Because there's really innovative stuff that's happening. Very much so. For example, our tide partner, Habitat South Africa, no longer builds homes and originates mortgages. Okay. Because basically everybody who was fell in Habitat's income range mm-hmm. is entitled to a free Habitat house. Right. But what Habitat is doing is they're working with the contractors that have got the big contracts to build those major developments. Mm-hmm. Five, six thousand house units, developments, and they are focusing on all the soft skills. Okay. So they're doing the micro enterprise, they're doing the homeowner education, right. they're doing that. And all of a sudden, instead of building eight houses a year, they're now serving five thousand families a year. Wow. That's true. Right? Yeah. Because they've they've redone that. And I think that that's sometimes being exposed to what your tile partner does right. can really help inform mm-hmm. maybe give you some ideas about what you can do locally to serve more families right. and to build more excitement for the ministry. Absolutely. That's, that's an awesome idea. That's a great, I mean, in my opinion, a great example of, you know, you used the term midlife crisis earlier. You know, sometimes people get in those because they're believing I'm just doing the same thing over and over again. Well, how do you escape out of that? Right. You know, by adapting, being organic and growing and changing. And sometimes that means, I mean, what you described in South Africa, that is a radical, change. Correct. I mean, going from building a couple houses every year to serving families in a very different capacity. But but I think this also goes back to your leadership, right? Because if the executive director is the only person who's bringing that idea to a board, they may go, yeah, 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 yeah. But I think what I'm really, as, as, we, as we move more into an aligned model of governance here, mm-hmm. the board's going to be tasked with a structured way of engaging with the community. Mm-hmm. And that's where you're going to start getting some of those ideas and that feedback. Because people are going to say, we love Habitat for Humanity, but, I mean, this was given as an example from the affiliate in Colorado. Mm -hmm. When they did this, we love Habitat for Humanity, but if you continue to build single-family houses, you're going to be out of business in five years Mm -hmm. because we're running out of land. 
And that feedback was enough for the board to hear that, to say, maybe we should start looking at condos and look at how, what does that mean? Alternative forms of ownership. Of ownership, correct. Um, Looking at more dense housing. That's going to be a growing issue along the coast. Mm -hmm. The irony for Savannah Mm -hmm. is that we have exactly the same problems that are facing habitat in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. in New York City, it's increasing land prices. It's growing unaffordability. Mm-hmm. The, the lack of affordable housing. And it's crazy. Yeah. Savannah, Georgia. Right. It's almost like we have a systemic problem here. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, it's, it's not it's not geographic. Correct. I mean, realistically. Um, that, that's fascinating. Uh, that's fascinating to hear. Um, and the Align, you've used now twice, I think, the, the, the talking about the Align model. Um, and this is what you and Ken talked about at the affiliate conference, right? Absolutely, and I'm a I'm a huge proponent of it because it, um, as I mentioned at that conference, and uh, there's one or two videos out there on on uh, through the Align Influence, Influence website. Um, I was really burning out fast mm-hmm. as an affiliate leader, and I really thought it was you know really had everything to do with me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, okay, probably some of it was, mm-hmm. um, but really sitting down realizing that it really has to do with how the board and executive director engage, mm-hmm. um, and and how we connect, yeah. and when we get the correct structure in place with the good policies and procedures behind it, um, you know, it's no longer about the the executive director. You've still got to have a good executive director for your board and you're hiring. You've still got to make the right decision. But really, you are the driving force for the sustainability of the organization. And you carry the ultimate responsibility to the community. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, um, we did a workshop down here. This is the coastal empire habitat for humanity, right? Right, So everybody said, well, you know, well, you know, is our executive director an emperor? And I said, I'd really detest that moniker because right. maybe one emperor in history who died of natural, natural <laughs> death. But um, that aside, I think, you know, um, so many nonprofits that I see are dependent on a strong executive. And then it has, they have a weak board. Right. Then the board gets nervous um, and or they completely tune out. And uh, we can't have that if we're going to have sustainable habitat affiliates. It's, it's so interesting to me on a personal level to hear you talking about this because for those of you who don't know, Harold is who hired me at Habitat Georgia. Well, me and a couple of other well, people. I mean, I mean the, rest of, yeah. the rest of the board. You were, you were the person who specifically called me. Yes. So, yeah. um, it's very interesting to me to hear Harold say this because there's two things that you told me early on at Habitat Georgia. First of all, I remember you telling me saying you've got to remember to take time for yourself. Mm-hmm. He said, because you will burn out in this job. So you talking about going through the burnout directly and then having to get through that, that's just really, it, it just struck me, it, it, the, the, the fact that you, that you went through that personally. And then another thing that you did, I, I don't even know if you remember doing this, Harold, but talking about you know having a stronger board and getting the board engaged after my very first board meeting that we did at Habitat Georgia, you know, I prepared a, an executive director report, and I more or less regurgitated that report at the board meeting. I remember you called me after the meeting because it, it ended up being, you know, like an hour and a half, two-hour board meeting. And you said, Ryan, um, and you did it in a very loving way, and, and it, it really touched me. You said, Ryan, in the future, with your executive director's report, keep in mind you got it to us a week before. Everybody on this board knows how to read. Mm-hmm. And he said, we don't need you to read it back. Just ask if anybody has any questions. And I remember you saying to me, you said, you know, this, if you're going to be on this board, you need to be engaged and you need to be reading the reports. So if they don't read them and they don't get engaged, that's really their fault. And shame on them for that. And that struck me, you know, because this kind of goes along with your whole idea of align influence. That it's not right. one person. It's not you be the emperor come in and tell us how it's going to work. You know, let people take responsibility, right? Let people take initiative and do what they need to do. Right, they need to. And then I think the other thing that's related to that is it's incumbent on boards and even on us 
as executive directors with those who report to us, we have to hold people accountable. Right. Absolutely. And ultimately, you know, the board has to discipline itself. Mm. It can't be disciplined by the executive director. Right. Um, I do not elect my board of directors. I do not recruit the board of directors, mm. the Coastal Empire Habitat for Humanity. There's a board development committee. Right. Yes, I can give ideas. I can give input. I will meet with prospective board members along with them. But ultimately, it's their it's their responsibility um, to do that, and and um, yeah, I I do think uh, I do think it's important that we build that. Um, you know, we build that culture. That the culture of accountability. A culture of accountability. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we can be forgiving. Right. We can do rectifying things, but you know, uh, we we yeah, we certainly uh, certainly need to do that. Absolutely. So that. With that in mind, I want to be respectful of your time. As sure. Being here, but we are run out of we are run out of podcast time too. I, I, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, you, your job mm-hmm. that you have right now. What would you say is the easiest part of that? Was that? You know, I think uh, I'm going to make it real quick and easy. I think it's great. I still am motivated every morning to get up and go to work at Habitat for Humanity because I do feel it's God's work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's making a difference. Um, you know, and it's a great mission statement and it's an antidote to their toxic divisiveness that permeates our society and, and globally. And I think just the, the fact is it allows us to see the humanity in everyone. Even if we might disagree with them on some issues, we need to never forget they're human beings created in God's image. I didn't write all that down, but... You know. <laughs> what about the hardest part here? I, I think often just the the sometimes tensions and complaints that can be petty. Okay. You know, you get, and you get petty complaints from people. Well, you know, it's you know, it's not you know, when we talk about staff, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, restore is is, I think sometimes that you know it can sometimes be, um, you know, it can be your volunteers that can do it, can be your homeowners, right? Um, and so you know, I think it's important not to sweat the small stuff, right? Okay, that that's important. Um, and then, you know, I think the other, um, the other thing, um, you know, in order to, uh, so I've got an interesting way on one level to deal with the, you know, the exhaustion, um, that comes with Habitat. Um, cause certainly my previous affiliate, I think we all have a, a sell by date, mm-hmm. right? Our affiliates, our communities need it and we need it. We need that break. And I think that goes back to the the problem that habitat doesn't have a structured way of moving leaders right right to to keep the blood circulating um and that's such an easy area to resolve for them right um but you know for me it's been both a sacrifice and on one level also a little bit of a, a blessing to work in a separate city from where my family is right okay it's of course a huge sacrifice not seeing them and missing some of their growing up but seeing them on weekends and having to physically get into a car and drive to another community mm-hmm. has allowed me to to be able to step away and say, all right, I can do this for 50 hours a week. Right. But then I physically have to get into a car and close down. Right. And go somewhere. You have to take um, care of yourself. Yeah, and that's, that's a good part of being able to, you know, take care of it. Yeah, uh, you know, has allowed me to keep my sanity. Because, you know, when you go into church on Sunday and you work in your local community where you work, mm. people are tapping you on your shoulder and saying, while you're trying to recharge and saying, man, you know, your restore truck never got by yesterday to pick up a donation. Right. Um, you know, there's only so much of that that you can take, right? Right. right. So, that's, so, so that's how you take care of yourself, I think, which was kind of, was my next question for you, is, is, is kind of how you keep yourself from that. Mm-hmm. From that burnout and that frustration, and getting inundated by getting inundated by all the petty things, um, I backed away from the microphone there. So if that got messed up, I apologize. Um, how about your employees? You know, I mean, uh, you, you know, them going great distances maybe is not sure. You know. I I think for me, the thing that's really important is um, you know we set goals, we meet as a week on a weekly basis as a team. Um, on the one hand, I think people may think it's micromanaging, but um, I will ask questions, and if I think it's something has maybe been dropped or I'm dropping something, and I'm going to remind people. 
But the goal is, my view is, I, this is not about gotcha. Right. This is about let's get the job done. Right. So set goals, work hard, but I also tell folk and try and model, uh, it's okay, I expect you to rest, right. take your vacation, right. right? I'll cover for you while you're, you know, this is a marathon and not a sprint, right. you know? Um, the other way to engage and inspire my staff, um, when I got here, we didn't have a good system of celebrating with house dedications. Really? Okay. And so we moved house dedications. The house dedication program really engaged the homeowner selection, the old family selection committee really well, um, and the executive director, but it didn't really engage board members and it didn't. And so we really turned it more into a celebration and inviting staff to come to that. Okay. So when people run on their performance evaluations, I felt the best about Habitat when I saw a family get the keys to their home right. at a dedication service, and I know their story, and I worked with them in the office, and I see the loop, yeah. and that inspires me to keep going. I think that you know that that that's meaningful. I'm not really good, but I'm trying to be more intentional about celebrating. Just be doing things like getting staff together, yeah. you know, particularly between program staff and our restore, right. you know, because I've worked, you know, when, when people go on vacation, manager, the people who report to me, you know, I, I step in and cover their position while they're away. So the restore, that means, yeah, I help load cars. Don't tell workers comp that. Um, you know, or the construction, you know, I'll lead a construction crew and, and that sort of thing to the best of my ability. And it, it allows me to, to stay in touch with what they're doing, but it also tells people, hey, you know, it's okay to take a day off. Right. It's okay to take a vacation. You're really living out a lot of the stuff that we've talked about that were concepts. I mean, you know, this idea of collaboration and figuring out what other people are going through. And, and you know... Um, just so people could get an idea of what kind of leader you are, I couldn't help but notice underneath the the, the prayer there, mm-hmm. uh, you have a quote from Robert Greenleaf, which is ironically again the quote that I actually used at our uh, board of directors meeting, right? Um, which is fantastic, you know, about or people growing as persons and, and whatnot. I'm not going to read the whole quote, but um, that you know Robert Greenleaf, of course, pioneered servant leadership. Correct. Yeah. And so. Um, what you just said and the way you described keeping your employees motivated is really servant leadership in action. I mean, would you agree? And that's what yeah, yeah. To me. Um, so I, I, the next question is really kind of it piggybacks on that answer you just gave me. Is you know what kind of practices have you adopted? You know, as a leader to make yourself better, both on a personal and professional level. What are the sort of things that you do? So, so uh, <clears throat> where I am, unfortunately. You know, in my 19 years with Habitat, I've had a young family and now I have a family of high school and graduates and college students now, right? So so my life has gotten a little easier, I think, in, on some levels. It's also easier to become a lot more, you know, to put in a lot more hours, okay. right? Because I think when, as you probably know, when you've got a young young family, um, they, they, they bring balance, which yeah. is good, right? Absolutely, yeah. To that. Um, but you know, uh, about 10 years ago, I mean, we were, I remember just getting really burnt out in my previous affiliate. Um, we were in the process of purchasing a building where we were going to move our restore. Of course, it was at the height of the great recession. Uh, we weren't sure how things were going to fit. That was the year as well. The state of Georgia removed, uh, their portion of the homestead exemption. So certainly we had lots of unhappy homeowners who's quite correctly were upset because they didn't know how they were going to make their tax payments because right. we we're under risk right? right. Um, so I learned a couple of practices with, through friends at that point. And I think one of the things I really do every morning is, is start with a morning devotion, right? Scripture reading. And I, I run 5Ks most mornings. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, fortunately, I'm in an environment where I can do that. Um, so exercise. Exercise is really important, that devotion. And often that allows me to put the day into perspective. Really? Uh, as part of my devotion, I think, you know, I have really been challenged by my Sunday school class. This year I, I taught during Lent uh, a lesson on Clarence Jordan, mm-hmm. the 
uh, inspiration, founder of Koinonia Farms, inspiration right. to Millard and Linda Fuller. Um, and his life and works are very, very pertinent. The other thing I do is I read the, lo- the local newspaper. Really? Because the local newspaper, I'm, I'm fortunate in a community that has, still has a good local newspaper yeah, that gives me international news, but it gives me the local news um, every day. And I, and I think that that's important for you as, an, as leader at a local level is what's happening in our community. Right. You know, we're, we're now recognizing newspapers not going to tell you the whole story. <laughs> right. Important side note there. Yeah, so so I think you know those 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 are uh, those are good pra- you know practices, uh, spiritual exercise, work. Um, yeah, for me, I think the Benedictines, the monks, talk about you know the importance of sleep, prayer, and work, mm-hmm. and that those should roughly be about eight hours a day. <laughs> okay, we we fudge those limits, but yeah. I think you know. It, it's been very helpful to talk about the importance of balance. Excellent. Now, last question, Harold. Mm-hmm. Here's the real, this is the, the money question right here. The money question. So do you have any sort of uh, professional goals or maybe personal goals, you know, that you're, you're working towards, you know, moving from a 5K to a full marathon? What, what's the, what, what's Harold Tessendorf looking like in the, the future? I, you know, I think, I think for me, the thing that I really recognize, I mean, I really, um, my wife and I have made a long, you know, made a commitment to Georgia. I mean, this is where we're, where we're, where home is, right? Right. Um, and I think what I really feel called to continue to do is to apply those mediation, return to some of the mediation work maybe, but okay. particularly grow. I enjoy putting the deals together, mm-hmm. so I enjoy the negotiations and putting things together that build, yeah. Right. Um, so looking at some state-level projects, I think, for me, would be exciting. Okay. Um, and then I think the other thing is, you know, continue the work that Ken and I have started to do, mm-hmm. working with affiliates, uh, boards of directors of nonprofits and their executive staff, because I think, you know, nonprofits are where we learn how to be good citizens. Right. And I think that works That works important. Uh, you know, it's, was it Franklin who... Uh, Benjamin Franklin, who said, uh, "Once the Constitution was written, what do we even?" When asked, "What do we have?" He mm-hmm. said, "A de- democracy, but we'll have to work to keep it." Yeah, and I think that's important work. So, so yeah, that and and I think you know I like housing because of the fact that it's, but looking at economic, sustainable local economic development is important. Absolutely, particularly when we talk about rural Georgia, when we talk about the rural initiative. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of things that we've got to be tackling. Absolutely, and we got a good state to tackle it in, and yeah, you know, habitat should be strong. I mean, I certainly, uh, you know, I want to see habitat grow Absolutely. in Georgia, not diminish, grow. Right. Absolutely, maybe we'll do things differently, but we definitely need to be serving more. So, one one final surprise question I'm going to throw in on you. Are you reading anything right now? If so, what is that? And what's something that you would maybe encourage listeners to read that has had a particular impact on you? So a dual question. Mm. What are you reading right now? So um, I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of, a lot of, uh, tend to be more history, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I like reading stuff about leadership. But I think that a book that I've just finished uh, is called In Search of the Canary Tree. Okay. And it was this, a basically a book that a PhD ecologist has written mm-hmm. about her research into um, why the yellow cedar tree was dying in Alaska. Okay. And recognizing that it had to do with climate change, but... Mm-hmm saying, well, what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. So doing a lot of field research, which she wrote about. But in the second half of her book, she went back and she spoke to people across those communities, loggers, native Alaskans, foresters, government people. And she said, well, what does this mean to you and what are you doing? And out of it, she realized that people were both grieving, but they were also adapting mm-hmm. to change. And I think 
and that we're looking at how to be more resilient. And I think that's a very good metaphor. Um, it's a good book to read. Um, and then last year I read um, and have a copy of the book Love Works, mm-hmm. um, which is written by the CEO of um, this, the company that, that um, also owns Wild Adventures down in Valdosta, but it's part of a national thing. But he wrote about moving from the corporate world to a corporate world where um, basically they, they, the founders of the organization practice servant leadership okay. and how they practice that. So I think, uh, I think those, are, those are two things that you know, really come to mind. Awesome. Harold, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. It's really, been great fun. Well, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you and, of course, appreciate everybody out there listening to us. And, uh, Harold, if there's nothing else, we're going to go ahead and wrap. Let's do it. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks, everybody.